Well, we are in week two of a three-part sermon series all about change called Ready or Not. Now, we all know that change happens, right? And there's really nothing that we can do to stop it from happening. I think it's pretty ironic that um, the change is one of the most constant things that there is in life. Last week, we learned that there's really a season for every kind of change under heaven. We saw that we can either react poorly to change or we can learn to embrace change and, and see it for the opportunity for growth that it can be in the hands of God. Finally, we learned that as change inevitably happens in our lives, that we don't need to be afraid of it, that we can learn to trust God who works together for the good of all who love him. Well, today we're going to dive a little bit deeper into this notion of change. Now, let's face it, some people like change. They actually thrive on change. I'm not going to say they're weird or anything, but some people really like change. But when you think about it, all of us really like the kind of change that we anticipate, the kind of change we can have some control over. For example, I remember back many years ago when, uh, when my girlfriend, who's now my wife Marge, and I began to plan for our wedding and our engagement and a lifetime of Christian marriage together as husband and wife. That was a plan we looked forward to and anticipated. And a couple of years after that, we began to look forward to the birth of our first child, our daughter Sarah, and we began to plan the, the nursery that she'd come home to and sleep in, the, uh, the ways that we'd uh, make sure that mom and baby were healthy by eating good foods and taking walks and exercising, or the way we'd read books to try and learn how to be a good mom or a good dad the first time out of the gate. I, <clears throat> I remember when my parents, who had worked hard all their lives, began to plan for their retirement to that time when they could travel, when they could relax and enjoy life and do lots of the different things that they could never do when uh, they were working so hard, um, nine to five every day. <coughs> Excuse me. Those anticipated kinds of changes are always welcome, especially when they finally come to pass and begin to happen. But what about those kinds of changes that hit us from out of the blue? The kind of like a sucker punch to our stomach, just strike from out of nowhere. The kind of changes that we don't see coming, that we don't get to plan for. You know, unforeseen changes can be very difficult to handle. And one of the most common reactions that people to ha have to changes that they don't see coming is to grumble about the changes. I mean, it's easy to think from Scripture, isn't it, about, uh, about people who grumbled. I think about the Israelites. When they came out of slavery in Egypt and they began to wander in the desert, it was grumble, grumble, grumble for 40 years. God, we don't have the good kind of food that we had to eat in, when we lived in Egypt. Or God, there's no fresh water for us to drink. Well, 2020 was certainly a year that brought about some changes that none of us saw coming, right? I remember when COVID-19 cases started to shoot up a year ago in March of 2020, and suddenly everyone's world was turned upside down. And I know that I often found myself grumbling, sometimes out loud, sometimes just up here. I'd keep it to myself. I'd say things like, you know, I know it's important that I wear this mask, but I don't really like wearing this mask. It makes it really hot and sweaty uh, around my mouth and my nose. 
Or I'd say to myself, you know, I'd grumble, you know, I can't believe my favorite restaurant isn't open. I want a three-way right now, and I can't get one. Or my, my grocery store, where I can shop 24-7, isn't open 24-7 anymore, and I ran out of something, and I need it now. How inconvenient. You know, people started to work from home more and more. It became harder to communicate with our coworkers. It became harder to stay in touch. And who can forget how inconvenient it was to not be able to hear every other word of what was said on one of those Zoom calls. Even church became harder, and it was easy to grumble. Well, another common reaction that we often have to unforeseen changes in life is to run from those changes, to run in the other direction. It's classic avoidance behavior. I think about Hagar and Sarah, when Sarah began to make Hagar's life so difficult and, and Hagar just ran away out into the desert to escape her mistress, Sarah. I mean, I think we've probably all tried to run away from a problem or two before. Maybe it was a terrible report card that you brought home as a little kid and you didn't want your mom and dad to see that F you got so you hid it as, far, as long as you could. Or maybe it was a painful breakup with a girlfriend or boyfriend and you just couldn't bring yourself to deal with the pain and to face the struggle and so you jumped right away into a new relationship way faster than you should have. There are lots of ways that people run from their problems Sometimes we throw ourselves into activities that keep us busy, like we watch too much television or play too many video games or we end up sleeping more than we ought to so that we don't have to think about our problems. Or we become workaholics, diving into our work so that we are too busy to think about our problem. Or we numb ourselves to keep our problem at bay with drugs or alcohol and avoid our problems that way. We might even pick up stakes and move to a new city, even a new state, run away from it all and get a fresh start. But you see, none of these methods of running really solve our problem, do they? They just postpone our problem. The problem is still there. We're going to have to deal with it sooner or later. You really can't run from your problem. Sometimes our reaction to unforeseen change is so strong that we actually rebel against it. I'm reading a really good book right now uh, about Benjamin Franklin and his son, William, and it's set during the American Revolution. And in the part that I'm at um, right now, or a couple days ago anyway, the colonists have become so angry at the taxes that are being levied on them by Mother England that they rebel. They refuse to allow any more imports into the country to be sold in the colonies. And when England pushes and pushes and, and sends uh, imports anyway, the Patriots rebel. They dumped a million dollars worth of tea into Boston Harbor. I don't know about you, I always thought it was like a few boxes of Lipton tea or something like A million dollars in today's dollars of tea into Boston Harbor. Now that's rebellion. A much more recent political rebellion occurred in 1990 when the scandal broke that then-President George H.W. Bush didn't like broccoli. The first thing he did was to ban broccoli from Air Force One, 
and the American growers of broccoli got so incensed that they sent 10 tons of broccoli to Washington, D.C. in a caravan of 18-wheelers. And finally, President Bush held a press conference, and he's had this to say, I do not like broccoli, and I haven't liked it since I was a little kid, and my mother made me eat it. And gosh darn it, now I'm president of the United States, and I'm not going to eat broccoli anymore. <laughs> and for the broccoli vote out there, Barbara loves broccoli. She tries to make me eat broccoli, but I won't do it. She eats it herself all the time so she can go out and meet the caravan of broccoli that's coming in to D.C. Yeah, I know that's a rather lighthearted look at rebellion. But in all seriousness, we need to learn how to handle unpredicted changes in our lives in the most appropriate, God-honoring way we can. Instead of grumbling about them, running from them or rebelling against them, which are all typical human responses. We need to focus on the ways that we can more successfully handle the unforeseen changes in our lives. Both the Old and the New Testaments are filled with stories of people who had to deal with unexpected changes. Some, some handled these changes more appropriately than others. And throughout the changes in their lives, these men and women came to understand that God is sovereign over everything that happens. They learned to live in contentment with God. And they came to understand that there is another reaction that we can have to unforeseen changes. They came to understand that no matter what changes came their way in life, no matter how unexpected it might be, that they could absolutely trust God. We read about several of these women and men this past week in our Bible reading plan, and I want to spend a little time examining their reaction to the changes that happened in their lives to look at how they trusted God and to see what we can learn from each one of them. And the first person I want to take a look at is Daniel. Now, Daniel was born in the southern kingdom of Judah during the reign of King Josiah. Now, King Josiah was the first king in a while of the kings of Judah to actually obey God. He was one of the good kings in the midst of a lot of disobedient kings. And so Daniel grew up in a time when King Josiah was trying to reform the country, to bring it back to God, to live by the laws of God once again, following God and his laws. But King Josiah was killed, unfortunately, in a battle with Egypt in the year 609 B.C. And then within just a few short years, another disobedient king was on the throne, and all of Josiah's attempts were forgotten, put on a shelf where they could gather dust and Judah returned to her evil ways. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar became the new king of Babylon. Now, Babylon was the world's superpower at that time. They had a strong uh, country, a strong army, and King Nebuchadnezzar swept down into Judah with that powerful army. He laid siege to it, and he made Judah a vassal state of Babylon. And to show just how powerful he was, he took lots of Judah's best and brightest citizens to live as captives in Babylon. And Daniel was one of those captives. 
Now, I can't really imagine how hard it must have been to be taken to a foreign country where you don't speak the language, where you don't really understand the customs and the culture of the people, and where the country and its people are actually your mortal enemies. I mean, that's some radical change in any person's life. So it'd be easy for us to imagine how Daniel might have rebelled against that change or tried to run away from it. It would also be easy for Daniel to have given up or given in. But Daniel did none of these things. He didn't even grumble about his situation. Instead, Daniel and several of his closest friends were chosen to serve in the king's palace in Babylon. But before they were able to do that, they were going to have to go through three years of rigorous training. First, the Babylonians changed their names. They didn't want any Judah-sounding names, and so they gave them a Babylonian name. And then, in, as part of their training, they were told that they would eat, king, uh, eat food from the king's table and drink wine from the king's um, um, wine supply. <laughs> Don't you hate it when a word goes like out of your mouth all of a sudden? But th the problem with that was that this food and this wine some of it would defile them. It would go against God's food purity laws if they ate it. And so Daniel asked for some special permission um, for him and his few closest friends to be given a special diet. And the, the guard was kind of worried about that, but he said, okay. And for 10 days, um, he gave him nothing but fresh vegetables to eat and, and clean water to drink. And at the end of that 10 days, they were going to see who was in better shape. Well, it turned out that Daniel and his close friends had this healthy diet, and they were in better shape physically than all the other trainees. And so they got special permission to continue this diet to keep them faithful to God. And so God blessed Daniel and his friends with wisdom and with understanding. And about a year after this happened, King Nebuchadnezzar began to have some dreams at night. And the dreams were troubling to him. He didn't know what the dreams meant. And so he called together his magicians and sorcerers, the enchanters and astrologers that were part of his court. And he said, tell me what I dreamed and then tell me the meaning of those dreams. Well, as you might imagine, those astrologers are like, what? We have to tell you what you dreamed and then tell you the interpretation of that dream? They pleaded with King Nebuchadnezzar, why don't you tell us what you dreamed and then we'll tell you the interpretation of that dream. And Nebuchadnezzar thought the magicians and sorcerers, astrologers were, were stalling. He thought they were up to no good, that they were, there was some mischievousness um, in, in what they were saying. And so he got really angry and he told them, um, if you don't do this, I'm going to execute you. I'm going to cut off your heads. And so Daniel intervenes. He asked the king to spare the astrologers, and to give him just a little bit of time to tell the king what he dreamed and to interpret the dream. And so Daniel gets together with his few closest friends, and they go to God. They pray to God. They plead with God to, tell, to show them the dream and to give them the interpretation. And that very night, that's exactly what happens. In a vision, in a dream, God reveals the king's dream to Daniel. And he goes and he tells Daniel, and he, or he tells the king, and Daniel bursts into praise. Daniel 2, beginning in verse 20. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. 
He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. Daniel kept his faith and trust in God, even when he was taken as a prisoner of war to a foreign country. He stayed obedient to God and the tenets of his faith, even when pressured to conform to the new culture in which he found himself. And amazingly, he stuck his neck out. He took a risk to his own life to save the lives of the king's astrologers and to help the king himself by figuring out his dream and what it meant. Daniel is one example of someone who trusted God even during times of cataclysmic change. Esther is another such example. Now, she lived about 100 years after Daniel did. And during that time of 100 years, Babylon had been conquered by Persia. And Persia was the new world's dominant power. King Xerxes is the, is the king of Persia. And one day, he became very unhappy with his wife, Queen Vashti. So he got rid of her. And the search was started for a new queen. Esther was a Jew living in the country of Persia in exile. And she was being raised by her uncle Mordecai because her own mother and father were dead. And Esther was very beautiful, the Bible tells us. And so she got noticed by the king's attendants who were going throughout the country, gathering beautiful women together to take back to the capital to maybe become the new queen. Well, King Xerxes took one look at Esther, and he thought that she was very beautiful, and so he made her his new queen. Now, there was a man in Persia named Haman, who was part of the king's court. Haman did not like the Jews, and he particularly didn't like Mordecai, because Mordecai wouldn't give Haman the honor that Haman thought he deserved. So Haman hatched a plot to have every Jew living in the country of Persia killed. And he got the king unknowingly to sign the decree. So finally, when Mordecai and all the Jews living in Persia heard about this decree, they were distraught, as you might imagine. I mean, they couldn't have seen this coming. It was a shock to them, a surprise to them. I imagine they were just trying to peacefully go about living their lives when suddenly everything changed and they learned that there was a death warrant out for them. So Mordecai reached out to his niece Esther, who was living in the palace, and he sent a message to her by one of her servants. You see, Mordecai wanted Esther to go and talk to the king and get him to rescind this decree to kill the Jews. Only thing was, there was this problem. No one was allowed to go and talk to the king unless the king invited them to come and talk to him, even the queen. And he hadn't invited Esther in to talk with him in quite some time. So Esther sent a message back to her uncle Mordecai. Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court 
without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family's father's family will perish. And who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther did not remain silent. She trusted in God and sought to save God's people living in Persia. She approached the king, and she came up with a plan that not only undid the evil plot by Haman, but ended up being his own undoing. Queen Esther also got King Xerxes to elevate Mordecai to a position of influence in the royal court. And the king also issued a new edict which protected the Jews from anyone in the future who might harm them. And so to this day, the Jewish people celebrate the festival of Purim and how Queen Esther saved her people some 2,500 years ago. Each Christmas, we hear the story of Joseph, don't we? Jesus' earthly father. And we remember that while he was busy making plans to marry the woman he loved, he got some news which turned his world upside down. That Mary, his betrothed, was pregnant. And Joseph knew that the baby she was carrying could not have been his. Matthew tells the story this way in his gospel. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together... She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. I imagine that Joseph was probably a mix of emotions when he got the news of Mary's pregnancy. Heartbroken, angry, betrayed, jealous. Yet he loved Mary and made quiet plans to divorce her so as to protect her. And then he had an incredible vision in a dream that spelled out God's plan for Mary to give birth to the Messiah. And again, this news was unforeseen, unexpected. And even still, Joseph trusted God and God's plans and took Mary as his wife. Well, the final person I want to take a look at this morning is the Apostle Paul. I mean, his whole ministry as an evangelist to the Gentiles was one of unforeseeable change. 
I mean, remember, at first he was a persecutor of the fledgling Christian community, even getting warrants for the arrest of the early Christians to have them killed. And all of that changed very unexpectedly while he was on the road to Damascus one day to round up some more Christians and have them tried. When the Lord Jesus himself appeared to Paul on that road to Damascus and changed everything forever, Jesus said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And after that, instead of persecuting Jesus and those early Christians, Paul became Jesus' biggest promoter, sharing the gospel all over the Roman Empire and planting churches and Christian communities wherever he went. Now, Paul faced a lot of unforeseen changes and challenges throughout his life. He was run out of town on multiple occasions. He was persecuted by Jews and Gentiles alike. He was beaten, he was put on trial, he was imprisoned multiple times. And yet he wrote in Philippians 4 that he had learned how to be content in the middle of all of that. And over his years of growing in Christ and having all of these experiences, Paul had come to have an inner peace within himself. Paul knew that he was right with God and he knew that he was doing the will of God. And he knew no matter what happened, that God is sovereign and in control of everything that happened to him. So Paul wrote these words in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, Paul had come to know that all the external outward appearances about him really didn't amount to anything at all. His afflictions, his persecution, his hardships painted a picture of his outer self wasting away. But that wasn't the whole picture. That wasn't even the most important part of the picture. What is really important is what Paul's changes, what Paul's circumstances are producing in his inner self. You see, Paul is being renewed day by day, and his afflictions are what are actually producing an eternal weight of glory that goes beyond and far exceeds any momentary and light affliction that he might endure temporarily. Paul doesn't fix his eyes on what he is going through or even on the circumstances or changes that he is facing. Instead, Paul puts his hope in the one who is unseen, in the one who is unchanging, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And my friends, we have to do the same thing. We have to stop focusing on the unforeseen changes in the world around us or those that are happening in our own individual lives or the lives of our family and focus on Jesus the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because, my friends, Jesus will be faithful to accomplish everything in and through you 
that he said he would. Will you pray with me? Precious, holy Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise that you are doing something new in us that we might not as of yet been able to see the end, but you do. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your holy word and for these men and women of faith that give us new insight into how to be faithful to you in the midst of some of life's most challenging circumstances. We thank you for Daniel, for Esther, for Joseph, and for Paul, and for men and women like them, Lord. Help us to learn from their example and put it into practice in our life. To not focus on the things right around us, but to focus on you, the author and the perfecter and the finisher of our faith. Lord, stay in our eyesight all the time. Let us keep our gaze firmly on you and renew in us day to day, day by day, until that day when we see you face to face. Lord, in a world that is changing all around us, in lives, in our own lives that sometimes feel like they are so unsettled, God, give us your peace, give us your light so that we may be a light and extend your peace to others, that we can see that there is yet a different way to react to the world's changes, and that way brings peace, that way is through trust in you. We love you, we praise you, we worship and adore you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray, amen.